and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from The Blinding Light of Sophisticated Pseudoscience by Jonathan Jarry and first broadcast live on the 7th of May 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Finding light sophisticated, sophisticated pseudoscience, and what I wanted to um, to address is the fact that pseudoscience has has gotten um, very sophisticated, and it's not as easy to criticize it and to analyze it and to investigate it as it used to be. And hopefully, uh, by going through a few case studies, um, I, I want to share some tips that I've acquired along the way as a science as a science communicator. This is what I this is what I do. So, uh, just so we're all on the same page here, uh, there we go. Um, science and pseudoscience, they kind of coexist on this spectrum. In fact, there's a very uh, old uh, uh, question in the philosophy of science called the demarcation problem. Uh, the question being, you know, where is the line that separates science from pseudoscience? Uh, there doesn't seem to be a line. Uh, there's really a sort of a gray zone in between. Uh, but there are examples at, at either end. I mean, astronomy is clearly a science. Astrology is clearly a pseudoscience. But there's a lot of stuff in between, and it can get quite hard to figure out where uh, uh, everything lands. Uh, I, I chose this example for a reason. Uh, so I'm showing here a personal Qi energy disc and a mobile phone Qi energy disc. Um, and the point that I want to make uh, with these particular items uh, is, is very simple. Um, I don't think you need to have a PhD to know that this is bollocks. Uh, you don't need also specific training in science communication to explain to people why this is so. Now, I don't want to minimize uh, the importance of, of quote-unquote debunking this stuff. Uh, I, think, I, I think that it is important. But the, the very point that I want to make is that you don't need to have an advanced college degree uh, to figure this out and to explain this to people. And because of this type of low-hanging fruit, uh, there are people like, for example, oncologist Vinay Prasad, who think that debunking alternative medicine uh, is uh, the, this idea that we're playing for the big leagues, but actually this is what we're doing when we are dunking on it. He has, in fact, said that dunking on, on alt-med is setting the hoop to seven feet and pretending to be Michael Jordan. And again, there's, there's a little bit of truth in there if, if what you're interested in is really the, the low-hanging fruit, but uh, that is not... Uh, what we're seeing uh, more and more with uh, with pseudoscience. And in order to explain this, I, I want to bring forth this particular figure, uh, which is, there are various versions of it that exist, and this is called the pyramid of evidence. And the point of it is that uh, there are different uh, types of scientific evidence, and they're not all as good as each other. Uh, not all studies are created equal. And at the bottom of the pyramid is evidence that is of, of lower, evidence type that is of lower quality, I should say. And, you know, you've got in vitro research. So, so any kind of findings that you get from uh, cells and, and culture flasks in the lab. Uh, then above that, you have animal research, you know, in rodents, for example. Then you get editorials and commentaries. And you have case reports. You know, if you're a doctor, oh, I saw this one patient. This is what they had. This is what I gave them. This is what happened. Okay, N equals one. Then there's a case series. I saw five different patients with the same condition in, in my clinic. And then you get to observational studies that will follow cohorts of people either backwards in time or forwards in time. 
And then you reach the top of the pyramid where you have uh, randomized control, double-blinded studies or trials uh, that are being done where you take uh, a, a number of, 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 of participants who have the same condition, for example, you randomly split them into two groups, and then you give uh, the intervention to one of them, you give something that looks like the, that the intervention but that is inert to the other group, and you follow them in time. And at the very, very top of the pyramid are systematic reviews where you look at all of the evidence that we have on this particular topic. And you have meta-analyses, which are trying to extract a, a number from all of these studies that tell you if the intervention works and if so, how well it works or, or how much damage it can, be, it can be making. And as skeptics, we often ask, uh, you know, alternative medicine in general, pseudoscience as well, uh, just to to give us evidence at the top of this pyramid, like show us good, high-quality evidence because we see a lot of testimonials, anecdotes, and that doesn't cut it. And now we're getting a lot of this uh, evidence from the top of the pyramid out of alternative medicine. And I want to go through uh, three different cases that I've personally looked at um, to show you how sophisticated it's become and and hopefully to give you a few tips on on how to, to parse through that. The first case that I want to go through is Reiki. Uh, so if you don't know what Reiki is, very quickly, the claims of Reiki is that we have a life force energy around us, that when it is low, it makes us sick, uh, and that Reiki healers can channel their God's energy to heal, heal their clients by placing their hands above and on the client's body. The history of Reiki is that Mikao Usui, who wanted to develop psychic abilities, climbed a mountain, starved himself for 21 days, and he had a vision. Uh, this is not a joke. If you go to uh, Reiki Association websites, this is the history of Reiki. Now, Reiki also has a few cousins. Uh, one of them is called Therapeutic Touch. It has its own history. Uh, for example, in 1971, there was a nurse called Dolores Krieger. She applied what she had been taught by two psychic healers, and she seemingly improved the condition of a young patient dying from a gallbladder condition by the laying on of hands. And then she went on to teach this to a bunch of, of nurses. Uh, so this is Therapeutic Touch. It's almost the same thing. As, as, as Reiki. Um, so we can look at these, uh, these stories and think to ourselves, well, this is clearly ridiculous. We can just dismiss this out of hand. Uh, but some people who believe in the stuff or some people who are kind of in the middle, they don't know, uh, they might send you uh, something like this. And this is a review article uh, entitled Reiki is better than placebo and has broad potential as a complementary health therapy. And um, when you look at something like this, uh, there are what I would call uh, superficial indicators of trustworthiness. What do I mean by that? I mean that this is, first of all, this is a review article. This is not one study, because uh, we know that one study on its own doesn't mean much. This is a review of many studies. That's good. The author has a PhD. You can't just dismiss this out of hand. Uh, this is not a blog post. Uh, this was published in, in an academic journal. And if you're familiar with scientific papers, you might even recognize the little Sage logo. This is a known publisher of over a thousand journals. So you look at this and you go, well, this looks respectable. Uh, but when you start to dig into this, uh, you realize that it, not all is as it seems. Um, First of all, this guy's PhD, I mean, he's a chemical engineer, so his PhD is in chemical engineering. Uh, he belongs to the Australasian Yusui Reiki Association. Um, the, uh, the journal itself, and I'll come back to this, uh, is a journal of evidence-based complementary and alternative medicine. And it's very important to point out that there are over 28,000 academic journals in existence now. So if you want to publish a study about homeopathy, about Reiki, about what have you, there will be a, a, a journal out there that will take it. 
And when you go uh, down uh, this paper and you look at the acknowledgments at the end, I just want to, w- to read them out uh, because that's, that's a big red flag for me. Uh, the author wishes to acknowledge the guidance and wisdom of his Reiki masters, Elizabeth and Robert Thuan, who are dedicated to professionalizing the practice of Reiki. The author is grateful for the support of fellow members of the Committee of Management of the Australasian Yusui Reiki Association, who are dedicated to letting the love of Reiki shine in the world. Now, um, if, if I read a genetics paper, um, I can tell you I've never seen any acknowledgments that they are dedicating uh, this paper to the people who are letting the love of genetics shine in the world. Uh, but this is what we're seeing here. This is not scientific language, right? Um, the, the particular journal in which it was published is quite interesting. Uh, it has been renamed since then the Journal of Evidence-Based Integrative Medicine. And in fact, Edson Ernst, uh, who is well-known in skeptical circles, is on its editorial board. And from its website, I saw that they are no longer accepting papers on Reiki. So this paper, in theory, would not have been accepted by this journal, who is seemingly trying to clean up its act now. Um, I, I want to mention also the fact that many of the studies that are inside of this review uh, article... Uh, use quality of life uh, as a measurement, right? Because when you're doing a study, you have to measure something to see if there was improvement or not. And I, I want to share with you what um, what one of my former bosses uh, once told me, who was a researcher, uh, who said, uh, you know, quality of life, uh, it's fickle. I mean, if you... Uh, if you, uh, if your participant comes to the lab, uh, to fill out a, a quality of life form as part of your experiment, but they stub their toe along the way, their quality of life has just gone down. Uh, and if you receive attention from a person, your quality of life goes up. So this, this quality of life is not necessarily as specific and stable of a measurement as we might think that it is. So that's something to keep in mind because we see this a lot in alternative medicine kind of studies. You measure quality of life, you report back on quality of life. Just something to keep in mind. I also want to mention that um, in a review article like this, which is not a systematic review, it is a review article, so you can choose which studies you want to put inside of it. Uh, it's always important to remember that those studies that have been put inside the review article, they might be cherry-picked. Uh, not all of them might have made the cut, and there are various reasons for that. Um, there's one particular study that is not even mentioned in this review article, and I understand because it is not a study of Reiki done to people. It is a study of Reiki practitioners, but to not even talk about it uh, is, is a, little, a, little, a little problematic. Uh, many of you will be familiar with this study. Uh, it was done by Linda Rosa, who's a nurse, uh, Emily Rosa, who is her very young daughter, uh, Stephen Barrett, who's the, who uh, spearheads Quackwatch. And uh, basically, uh, young Emily Rosa was wondering, you know, these, these therapeutic touch practitioners and these Reiki masters, they say that they can uh, feel uh, the energy around our body, so let's test that. And they brought in, as you can see on the picture, they brought in a number of therapeutic touch practitioners behind this, uh, this screen. Uh, they, were, uh, they had their hands on the other side of the screen, left uh, and, and right uh, arms extended. And Emily would hover her hand above the therapist's left or right hand and do so at random and ask them, where is my hand now? Like, if you can feel my energy field, you should be able to do this. Now... If you can't feel it and you just take random guesses, let's say that you flip a coin, then you'll be right 50% of the time. And that is roughly uh, what happened. These, these therapists were, if I remember correctly, they were right about 48% of the time. So they couldn't feel this energy field. And the reason for that is that it's just not there. Um, so, um, so, that, so that's it for, for, for Reiki. Uh, but but I want to I dig a little bit deeper now um, into 
a different case um, involving tapping. Uh, tapping has a lot of different um, names, emotional freedom technique or EFT is one of them. And I first found out about this about a year ago and I, I made a video about this because it was just brand new to me. And uh, tapping is quite interesting. So the method behind tapping is that you think of something that ails you or that you're not happy with. You rate your issue on a scale from one to 10 and then you repeat a mantra inside your head. You say, even though I am lazy, I deeply and completely accept myself. And then you go and you tap a specific sequence at specific points on your body while repeating the mantra. And when you're done, you go back and you rate your issue in your mind on a scale from one to 10. And if it went down, then, oh, the technique worked. Um, so, so, so when it comes to tapping, when I learned about tapping, um, what I did is um, I, I, I looked into it. I investigated this. And it's something that I got from, from Joe Nickel, who's a famous uh, paranormal investigator in the States. I, I had the chance to interview him a couple of times. And he told me that he is not a debunker. Uh, he doesn't like that word to debunk because it, it makes it sound like he walks into a room and he's looking to prove that this thing isn't true. And, of course, that's kind of the opposite of skepticism, right? You want to keep an open mind. You want to go looking for data. So I investigated this tapping phenomenon. I was curious to know uh, what evidence was out there. And as you can see from the little uh, red rectangle, uh, there were a number of studies that were out there in the literature uh, on uh, tapping. Some of them were observational. They were cohort studies. Some of them were randomized uh, trials. So that's interesting. Um, but what's also interesting is that from 2000 to 2009 or so, there was like this first wave of criticism of tapping that I noticed. A lot of publications were coming out, non-peer-reviewed publications like Skeptical Inquirer. There was a post on science blogs uh, looking at this, uh, this, 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 this discipline or this therapy, which is also known as thought field therapy. Uh, but perhaps even more interestingly, there were uh, peer-reviewed publications uh, pushing back against the body of evidence on tapping. Now, not every pseudoscientific intervention will have a peer-reviewed paper criticizing those bad studies in that field. But once the field gets big enough, uh, once in a while, there's a, there's a scientist who decides, you know what, I need to publish this in, in the peer-reviewed literature. So that's what Danny McCaslin and Gary Baker did with their papers. And they took a look at all of those studies of tapping to show all the flaws that were in them. Uh, even though the studies seemed to show that tapping worked, they were like, eh, not so fast. For example, they said there was a study where patients could exit the study and re-enter the study that had not been declared or corrected for. There was a study of tapping for phobias that compared uh, uh, tapping to a type of exercise that is not an established therapy for phobia. And so that's, that's quite clever because if you are comparing your therapy to something that is not standard of care, it may be that this other thing that you're comparing it to, maybe it even causes harm. And so your uh, therapy by not causing harm might look like it's working better than the other one. It might look like there's something to it. And the other thing that they highlighted was a type of fallacious argument called the purple hat fallacy. And uh, let's illustrate this purple hat fallacy. So um, this is not my call. And he says, uh, oh, you have a headache. Um, and so take a couple aspirins. Here, take some aspirins. He gives you some aspirins while wearing a purple hat. And then you take the aspirins. The headache goes away. He says, oh, did it work? Okay, well, it's because of my purple hat. See, my purple hat cured you. All hail the mighty purple hat. So if we uh, uh, simplify this, uh, this is the purple hat fallacy, right? So you administer a beneficial intervention, you couple it to a neutral intervention, you notice improvement, 
And then you use that to say that my neutral intervention worked. Now, I think when I show it like this, it's quite clear what's happening there, where, where the fallacy is. And so what they were saying is that there's something to tapping that seems to be working, but we don't think it's the tapping itself on the specific parts of your body. And one way to investigate this purple hat fallacy is to do a dismantling experiment. Uh, and that's what, that w- what was done in 2003 by Wade and Holder. They dismantled tapping into its component parts. So they had some of their participants tapping on the right parts of their body. They had other participants tapping on the wrong parts of their body. They had some tapping on a doll and they had some not tapping at all. And everybody who was engaged in tapping, regardless of where the tapping was, was taking place, they all did better than the people who didn't tap. And so the conclusion from the study was this looks like it's just exposure therapy. The tapping itself on, on specific parts of the body doesn't do anything. Um, now, here's where it gets complicated and, and why I say that pseudoscience can get quite sophisticated now. Following that, there were more studies. And then you can find something like this. And this is called, is tapping on acupuncture points an active ingredient in emotional freedom technique, a systematic review and meta-analysis of comparative studies. And the big highlight of this is they're they're saying that this was an active ingredient and outcomes were not solely due to placebo. Now, I should mention here that those specific points where you tap yourself, oh yeah, by the way, those are acupuncture points or acupressure points, if you will. So tapping is this weird offshoot of, of acupressure. But here is a study that specifically looked at the purple hat fallacy um, that uh, is done by a bunch of PhDs. Uh, you know, the first author is Dawson Church, PhD. We'll come back to him. Everybody there has a PhD. This is a systematic review. It is a meta-analysis of all of these studies, and it comes to a positive result. So again, this is not you know, debunking testimonials online. This is the big leagues. What do you do with this? So we're at the top of the pyramid here. We have, this is a dismantling, uh, uh, well, a look at all the studies that have seemingly dismantled this and looked at the individual pieces to see if it was the tapping or not. Now, um, here's my tip. When things get very complicated, ask for help. Um, Because there are a lot of people out there who uh, are extremely good at looking at scientific studies and, and figuring out what went wrong in them. And uh, when I was putting these slides together, there were three names that popped off the top of my head. Uh, there's uh, James Heathers, uh, who's doing excellent work. In fact, one of his partners in crime, uh, uh, Nick Brown, is going to be giving a talk uh, I just saw on Skeptics in the Pub online in a few weeks. Uh, David Gorski, who's uh, quite well-known in skeptical circles, uh, who uh, writes for Science-Based Medicine, is, is their editor, in fact, uh, is known for writing very long blog posts in which he delves very deeply into flawed studies uh, our very own Edson Ernst also has a blog where he does this too. And these people who have this kind of training will sometimes uh, find flaws that may not uh, appear superficially when you take a quick look at a paper. Uh, so I would recommend that you, that you check out uh, their, uh, their blogs, their websites, their Twitter feeds because they might uh, have posted about this. Or you might even uh, want to write to them and ask, ask for help. Um, there was a very good uh, look at the, this particular meta-analysis and, and other more recent uh, studies of, um, of tapping on HealthyBotSmart, uh, which is a site that doesn't get a lot of traction in skeptical circles. I haven't seen it, but they, they do a very excellent job at, at reviewing uh, the studies behind, behind particular claims. And Nicholas Ferrara, in this case, did a very good job at uh, handling emotional freedom technique. 
something else that you want to ask yourself uh, in these these uh, meta analyses and all that kind of stuff is is the thing that is being studied even plausible, right? Uh, because we it's something that we we tend to to um, forget about, uh, especially in this framework of evidence based medicine, and that's perhaps. The one, the one big flaw in it is that if you read Cochrane reviews, for example, of you know magical crystals, if there is uh, one such review, uh, they will say, "Well, we didn't find enough uh, good quality evidence for this. More studies are needed." Um, and that's the thing is that they don't take into account prior plausibility. But in the case of tapping, uh, as I mentioned, it it, it it resorts on the use of acupressure points. So you can look at the plausibility of acupressure of acupuncture. Uh, it doesn't make much sense. I mean, we know there are, there are multiple charts of where these points are depending on your school of thought. There are a lot of studies looking into acupuncture and showing that it is, it's not doing anything uh, beyond placebo effects. And the other thing also is that if, if simply tapping on your face like this is activating an acupressure point, uh, why do acupuncturists need needles, right? Why do you need to penetrate the skin, uh, whereas these guys are saying, no, you just tap here and it does exactly the same thing? And if just tapping your skin like this is activating those points, what about when you shower? Uh, what about when you exercise, when you have sex, when you dance, when you do all these things where you're touching yourself in, on various places? Are, are, are you not activating these points? Like it's just, it does not make much sense. Um, and another tip also is to ask who is behind the claim. And this famous Dawson Church person, um, you know, he's got a bachelor's degree in communications. He has a THD, which I'm guessing is a theology degree in integrative healthcare from Holos University and a PhD in natural medicine from Universal University. And he has a whole website where he trains people on how to do tapping. So if you want to buy a PhD in the mail, you can do so. Uh, so just because you have a PhD after your name doesn't mean that you've really earned it or that you, you're, you're particularly uh, savvy in a, in a science-based discipline. Um, and so this particular meta-analysis and systematic review uh, was criticized also for a variety of reasons. I it gets very, very technical, but a lot of the studies in there are not good quality studies. And to illustrate that, um, I will go to my final uh, case study, and we'll go even deeper into this one, because I want to talk about craniosacral therapy. As a science communicator, I sometimes get sent um, these kinds of studies, these kinds of meta-analyses and systematic reviews of like a woo intervention, some kind of pseudoscientific intervention by someone who says, hey, I, I think this is BS, uh, but this looks legit. Uh, I was sent this by a friend of mine, a colleague of mine. I don't know what to tell them because this looks like, you know, this is proof that it works. So what do you do with this? And I got sent a particular, um, a particular uh, paper about craniosacral therapy that I'll go over. Now, the claims of CST is that our cerebrospinal fluid, it pulses, and our skull bones, they expand and they contract to the beat of this pulse. And the claim is that therapists can feel this pulse, they can measure it, they can diagnose you based on its qualities, and then they can treat you. Um, now, there are a lot of problems with these claims. Uh, there's absolutely no evidence that the pulse itself exists. There have been small studies, and I do mean small studies, but they have shown complete lack of agreement among therapists on the pulse rate of these patients. So you have one patient lying down, you bring in three different CSC therapists, they evaluate the pulse, and then they report vastly different numbers. 
And the other thing also is that uh, they, they, the, the way that they fix you is that they, 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 have the, they do these tiny movements uh, over, over your head. Now, these tiny movements, they will not move the plates of your skull. They are essentially fused. There was even a study done in rats to show that there's just no movement there with these tiny movements. And imagine if a light touch was this powerful. Imagine the impact of jogging on your skull. I mean, you would die just from going out for a jog. So none of this makes sense, right? Um, but I got sent this. Cranial sacral therapy for chronic pain. Heaven knows we need better interventions against chronic pain. A systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. Like again, this is top of the pyramid stuff. You've got all of these uh, authors there. This is published in BMC Musculoskeletal Disorders. This is a, a genuine journal. And their uh, takeaway message is our analysis suggests significant and robust effects of CST on pain and function lasting up to six months. So the person's like, well, what do I do with this? Uh, this looks legit. Like, is there something to craniosacral therapy? So um, the thing we have to remember about meta-analyses uh, is that it's garbage in, garbage out. If the studies that are used, that are put inside the meta-analysis to crunch the numbers on, if those studies are bad studies, the meta-analysis is useless, right? So, my tip when you're facing something like this is go read the individual studies and ask yourself, are they garbage? And I first saw this done uh, very uh, eloquently um, on the French side uh, because we have this, this thing, this, this nonverbal communication uh, discipline called synergology, uh, which uh, has no foundation, no, sci no scientific foundation at all. Uh, but it is being taught to cops, to judges, um, and, and, and to lawyers. And it's this idea that you can tell if somebody's lying or not by looking at where they're touching themselves as they're talking and slight, you know, micro movements of their face, all that kind of stuff. And um, there was a series of, of critical pieces in our press uh, here in Quebec many years ago, uh, around 2015, um, about synergology. And the founder of synergology was not happy about uh, this criticism in the press. And so he sent that he first of all said, cease and desist, remove this from your site. And also, by the way, here are 14 references that show that synergology works. And so a friend of mine and, and fellow skeptic uh, was like, okay, I guess I'll just go and read them. And so he read all of these studies and he wrote a very long blog post going through each one of them showing that actually none of them showed that synergology works. None of them provided any kind of positive evidence. Some of them were actually critical of synergology. Uh, one was a thesis by a student who decided to use it for art purposes. Like it was complete rubbish. But again, it's blinding with science, right? You just throw a bunch of references at people. You hope they don't look at them and it looks very legit. So... Let's look at the 10 trials that were part of this meta-analysis of, crani of craniosacral therapy. That's what I did. The first one is a feasibility study, a pilot study. Can we do this? This is meaningless. Okay, that's one done. Trials two and three basically argue against craniosacral therapy. 
the first one says, well, it's basically just as good as massaging muscle knots, really. The second one provided a negative result. So when you do a study like this, you usually have what is called a primary outcome measure. So it's the main thing that you're going to be measuring, and it's going to tell you if your thing is working, yes or no. But you can also have secondary things that you're going to be measuring and write a hypothesis that you then will build a study around to properly study, but that you should not be using these secondary analyses as, there we go, my study worked, uh, this intervention works. But that's what they did. Their main result was negative, but then they also measured blood levels of a bunch of things. And, oh, it turns out that people who got CST, they had differences in blood levels of potassium and and magnesium uh, compared to the control group. Now, they also measured sodium and chloride and phosphate and calcium and lactic acid in the blood. Those did not change. uh, But, you know, potassium and magnesium, oh, those changed. Therefore, CST works in some bizarre way. So, again, this study was negative. So again, no good evidence that that CST really works. Then we had five trials with the wrong control group. Because again, if you're going to be comparing CST to something, you better make sure it's something legit. Um, And some studies were comparing craniosacral therapy against nothing. And as you probably know, if 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 you're in pain and you do something to the person, even if you just chat with them for a little while, you ask them to lie down, whatever it is, they will feel a little bit better. Uh, some compared uh, CST to, again, to resting on your back. But again, there might be something else of, of touching the person, of having a hands-on manual therapy that might make a difference. Uh, it compared against deactivated magnets. It compared against deactivated ultrasound. Again, I'm asking, like, can we compare this to a sham hands-on manual therapy? Is there something to this pulse, right? To this measurement of the pulse, to trying to move the plates of the skull around. Is there something to that? Those control groups will not be able to tell us that. So that's five trials out of the way. So now we're left with two trials uh, that cannot be dismissed as easily. And these are the papers uh, as such. One of them looked at uh, tennis elbow pain, and another one looked at chronic neck pain. It's important to point out, uh, for the last study, the same authors uh, of that study authored the meta-analysis that we're looking at right now. So um, here is the first one about uh, tennis elbow. 11 participants in the treatment arm, 12 participants in the sham arm. This is nothing. This is, these are very low numbers, and you're going to get noise. And sure enough, if we look at that figure there, uh, the, the, the first couple of, um, of columns is for the actual CST intervention. The last uh, pair of columns, P-O-E-M-M-T, uh, that's the sham intervention. And the uh, grayish column is before the intervention. In black, it's after the intervention. That graph measures grip strength. And you see the little lines uh, with, the, um, uh, with the little bars at the top. Those are error bars. And you can see that the spread uh, of, of, of the real values are it's very large. Um, and so there's, there doesn't seem to be much, uh, much difference there. You see a similar kind of thing with, with pain intensity, with functional activity. The, the, the spread of this data is quite high. And, um, and, and no wonder, because there are just so few people in this study. Uh, you can't uh, deduce much from that. The last study, uh, there's some good stuff about this last study of, of craniosacral therapy. 54 participants in total. Not great, but compared to what we've seen before, it's a big improvement. Uh, they did use a light-touch sham treatment, which is good. I like that. Their primary outcome measure was pain intensity, which is good. Uh, it decreased, we are told, by a clinically relevant amount in the treatment arm. Okay, things are good so far. 
Now, because this, this, this study was a little, a little bit trickier, I wanted a second pair of eyes. And as I said, you know, ask for help. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be co-hosting a podcast with an epidemiologist. He's very good at stats, uh, Christopher Labos. And so I asked Chris, I said, can you look at the study as well? Uh, so we both take a look at it. And uh, as he pointed out, there were some issues with this particular study. Uh, people who had a distinct neck pathology were not allowed to be participants in this study. So if you had a diagnosis for your neck you were not eligible for this study. So all the people in the study have this weird neck pain. They don't know what it is. There were no confidence intervals to show uh, you know, the, the spread of the data. Uh, and they did not adjust for multiple testing. So they conducted a number of different tests. And of course, the more you test, the more tests you conduct, the more likely you are to find something positive by chance alone. And there are ways of correcting for this. It's not perfect. Uh, but they did not adjust for multiple testings, which is bad. But perhaps even more egregious than all of that is the fact that the patients in the sham group took a lot more medication to begin with and might have been sicker. So if we look at uh, uh, the table two here, uh, you will see that the very first column, uh, it's all of the, the traits uh, uh, of, of their participants. Um, the first column in yellow is for craniosacral therapy and the one next to it is for the sham intervention. If we look at current pain medication, who is regularly taking pain medication currently? In the craniosacral therapy group, it's nobody. But in the sham group, it's 3.9%. If we look at who is taking pain medication when needed, in the craniosacral therapy arm, it's 26%. In the sham arm, it's over twice that. It's 53.9%. Uh, if we're looking at uh, pain medication that was taken in the past, 48% in craniosacral therapy, 70% in the sham arm, who has taken physical therapy before? 55.6% in craniosacral therapy group, 66.7% in the sham group. These are not equivalent groups. Now, because of the size of these groups, uh, it was not a statistically significant difference. So the p-values are not significant. They were like, oh, our groups are the same, move it on. But I think visually you can clearly see that there is a big difference between these groups of participants. So once again, what can you say about this? These groups were not equivalent. So once again... We're presented with a meta-analysis of 10 studies. These studies are garbage. So this meta-analysis, no matter how nice it looks on the outside, itself is garbage. Now, just to conclude, um, there, are, there are issues um, with, with meta-analyses and with systematic reviews. I was mentioning this sort of a, we've been asking alternative medicine to give us top of the pyramid stuff for so long. And now they are really churning them out. They're not the only ones. Like anybody in, in any academic field is doing so as well. This is a graph uh, on the horizontal axis. is from 1986 to 2014. On the vertical axis, it goes from 0 to 30,000. Each column is the number of uh, either systematic reviews or meta-analyses published that year alone. And as you can see, it's, it's an exponential curve. It's two exponential curves. Systematic reviews is sort of the outside curve. It's the biggest one. In 2014, it's just shy of 30,000 systematic reviews published in that year alone. We see a similar phenomenon with meta-analyses. So we are publishing these kinds of papers a lot more than we used to uh, in, in science in general, and that, that includes pseudoscience. Why is that? Well, it turns out that they're easy to do. Uh, they don't cost a lot of money. Um, I mean, uh, my friend Chris uh, also participates in, in some of these meta-analyses, and he tells me, you know, once you've extracted the data that you need uh, to crunch, 
crunching the number itself is quite quick and easy. Uh, so they are quite easy to do. Uh, they get cited a lot, right? Because we rely on them. Uh, we, we think it's the best form of evidence that we have. And it can provide you with a lot of prestige. And so we just keep cranking them out. Um, this is from a, uh, a paper by John Yanides, uh, who's a uh, typically well-respected epidemiologist uh, and, and critique of bad research. Uh, he wrote about this phenomenon of meta-analyses and systematic reviews, and by his estimate, and of course this is partly subjective, it is based on what he's seen in the literature and studies of those kinds of studies that have been done, and also of his own kind of instincts and whatnot. Um, he deems that there are about only 3% of meta-analyses that are decent and clinically useful. 20% by his estimate are unpublished. 27% are redundant and unnecessary. 17% are decent, but they're not useful. 13% are misleading. 20% are flawed beyond repair. So we have this flood of, of, of what looks like good quality evidence out there in the literature. But as it turns out, very little of this is actually decent and clinically useful. So uh, when I was showing the pyramid of evidence beforehand, uh, it, it seemed like systematic reviews and meta-analyses were at the very top. But I would now argue that a robust, randomized clinical trial, and hopefully more than one, uh, is, can actually be superior to a garbage-in, garbage-out meta-analysis because meta-analyses can be flawed. RCTs can be flawed as well. That's why I'm saying if you have a good quality RCT, uh, it's a better form of evidence than a garbage meta-analysis. If you are interested in this particular topic, uh, I would recommend uh, the paper by John Yanides. Now, a little asterisk next to his name. You might have heard his name recently in the news uh, because um, he, um, he's part of the COVID-19 uh, story. And he conducted, he was part of a, a really bad study that was very badly done. And I caught a lot of flack for being uh, methodologically unsound. Uh, and so it's quite quite ironic uh, that somebody who has taken such a strong stance against bad research uh, might be guilty of bad research himself, but that's how it goes. Uh, but this particular uh, paper on, on these systematic reviews and meta-analysis is, is very informative. Uh, it was also mentioned on the Talking Biotech podcast, episode 233, with Jeffrey Cabot, who is an epidemiologist, which, so I, I highly recommend this if you're interested in this particular topic. So to conclude... Um, if you are interested in this kind of work, if you are being sent these kinds of papers and you want to figure out, you know, how, how do I go about investigating these things, uh, remember to check the author's credentials, like who are these people, where did they get their PhDs from, what are the journal's credentials, right, because the Journal of Homeopathy, it's a real thing, uh, so you can get anything published these days, and there are predatory journals as well. Uh, also check the, for the plausibility of the claim, right? Because a meta-analysis typically does not look at plausibility. It just goes, well, here are the studies that were done. Let's see what, what the answer is. Uh, but plausibility should figure into this. Um, ask yourself, what got left out of this review article that I'm reading? If you're familiar with the literature on the topic, it's something that will be uh, quite, quite easy to do. If you're not, you, you might have to do your own uh, searches through the literature to see what might have been left out. Uh, you can look for peer-reviewed rebuttals as well. As I mentioned, if the, the this pseudoscientific field is big enough, uh, it might actually have uh, caught the attention of actual academics uh, who will want to rebut it properly in academic journals. Uh, look for dismantling studies. Always ask yourself, like, 
Could there be a component to this that would work, that we know would work, but that has nothing to do with the pseudoscience behind it? And if so, are there studies that have tried to separate these two components to see which one is contributing to this benefit that we claim to be seeing? And in a case of a meta-analysis, again, look at the individual studies because it's garbage in, garbage out. So go and find those studies, look at their quality, and you might be surprised to find out that all of these studies are trash, and so this meta-analysis means nothing. And last thing is, of course, ask for help. There's a very, um, very uh, bright community out there of, of researchers uh, who are very qualified to do this kind of work. Uh, I follow a whole bunch of them on Twitter. Uh, and it, it can be quite, quite fun uh, sometimes when I'm stuck to just ask for help out there and get some fantastic people coming in to, uh, to help me because, of course, I can't know everything. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, and I will uh, give the mic back uh, to our moderator and hopefully uh, we'll be answering some questions at some point. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Uh, I hope everybody had a, a nice, relaxing 10-minute break and time to think up some questions. I know we've got plenty of questions uh, for this, uh, this Q&A session. Uh, so please, uh, everybody, join me in welcoming back to uh, the stream our speaker this evening, Jonathan Jarry. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for that, uh, that talk. Genuinely, I think it was genuinely fascinating. fascinating. And I could see there was, I could a, see lot there was of, a lot of uh, great reception, great reception in the, the comments and things. So I think people were very, very pleased. Oh, thank, um, you. Thank, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank so you. Let me jump, so let me jump straight into the questions here. Uh, we have a question from Malcolm who asks, uh, what do you think is the best way to correct somebody who promotes a scientific treatment? A scientific or a pseudoscientific, sorry, uh, sorry, uh, pseudoscientific treatment? Don't, I wouldn't want to correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, it, it depends on who the person is, right? Because when you say promote, uh, if, 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 if we're talking about like a chiropractor who is promoting boosting your immune system, for example, uh, that's very different from somebody who does not have a financial incentive and who is promoting it because they think it might work. And, hey, this is, this is cool. This is my personal experience. Um, if, if, if the question is uh, about a particular uh, a professional person who is in the alternative health business and who is selling something uh, and, and you know that it is not based on scientific evidence, you can lodge a formal complaint with their professional order. Um, it may not do anything. Uh, we have some experience here in Canada. Uh, my, my friend Ryan Armstrong does a lot of that. And, of course, if the order is made up of people who have strange beliefs, then they're not going to do much about it. But that's something that you can do. But I, I suspect the question had more to do with uh, if somebody uh, just happens to believe in these things and they're, they're going online, they're saying, hey, try this oil of whatever. It, it, might, it might cure your, 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 your the flu or COVID or whatever. Um, one, of the best, one of the things I would like to see less of uh, especially in skeptical circles, I, but I, that might be more of a North American thing, is calling people stupid. Uh, is is all that kind of name calling and 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 that that sort of thing, which is which is not productive at all because all it does is just it drives a wedge between you and them. And of course, they've got a community of people uh, who will accept them and who will give voice to their concerns. And we're coming in and pointing fingers and calling them idiots. And so that's, that's not, just not very productive. Um, I think one of the best things to do, uh, one of the best pieces of advice that I've got about this is to think of this as uh, customer service. Right? So if you work for a customer service, uh, you don't want, to, uh, uh, you don't want to, to irritate the customer. You don't want to say bad things about them. So you will say, you know, uh, you, you can say, for example, I understand where you're coming from. I understand you might be concerned about these things. Uh, you, I, I understand also that you, you know, let's say that, you know, uh, the person is against pharmaceuticals. 
yes, some of them have really bad side effects, and you know the pharmaceutical business has has issues. Uh, that being said, uh, you know here are some links for you to to go check out because I I don't think that this thing uh, actually does the thing that it's supposed to do. Um, and uh, and you can engage with a person if they seem to be in good faith. Uh, for me, if the person is is resolute in their uh, in their belief in nonsense and they just want to pick a fight, I, I don't continue the interaction because I don't think it's it's productive at all. Uh, but you may want to leave some links there for the lurkers, the people who are not um, actively participating in the conversation, but who are witnessing the conversation. These are the people who you are more likely to convince than the person that you're directly interacting with. Yeah, and if I could add to that, I think that's also one of the reasons why it's so important not to be the guy who's saying, oh, you're stupid, you're gullible, you're an idiot, because the people who are watching it will then see you being in the, acting in this way that could come across as very arrogant. Whereas if you come across uh, and you comport yourself with a, with a level of kind of compassion and understanding and, uh, and gentleness and finesse, then the people who are watching it will come away thinking, well, that Jonathan seemed like a really nice guy and he seemed like he was very respectful. So maybe he had some things to say and you've disguised yeah. the fact that you're actually secretly a monster so that's quite, uh, that's quite <laughs> exactly <easy>. exactly <laughs> i mean as, as we like to say you know wh- when's the last time you changed your mind after somebody called you an idiot uh you know so keep that in mind yeah yeah uh, we've got a question here from louise uh we can't we obviously can't humanly fact check everything so sometimes we have to rely on the judgment of an organization or a person that we trust so how do you go about choosing who to trust yeah, uh, this is the number one question that I get when I give talks. Um, and, and basically, um, you, you want somebody who, uh, who is nuanced, right? Because if, if somebody claims to have all the answers or they claim that this thing is going to cure you of everything, like this kind of absolute language usually belies pseudoscience. Uh, you want to go with, with people who are very nuanced in what they're saying. That's, that's a good tip that they are, uh, they've got their, their thinking cap on. Uh, you also want um, you, you want to look for people who aren't afraid of saying, you know what, I was wrong about this. Uh, I'm issuing a correction um, or the evidence has changed. Now I've changed my mind about this. Uh, we unfortunately live in a society where changing your mind publicly is seen as a bad thing, especially in politics, uh, but in all areas of life. Uh, but it, should, it shouldn't be. It should be a good thing. Like if, if you have changed your mind about something because of the strength of the evidence, that's a good thing and we should respect that. Um, I would also look for the opinions of professional bodies uh, in medicine, for example. There are a lot of associations of medical professionals who will issue position statements on certain issues. Uh, and so you might uh, be able to find these position statements on specific issues that concern you. Um, uh, and uh, but although a little asterisk there, uh, anybody can start a professional association. And so there are... <laughs> For example, there are, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There are integrative oncology associations, and integrative medicine is the new branding of alternative medicine. Uh, so you do have to be careful which, which institutions. And then, you know, because now we're in the middle of a pandemic, I mean, the, the usual, the WHO, the CDC, uh, the, the big uh, health organizations, uh, they will tend to have high-quality information. They're not perfect. Uh, I believe the, the WHO is kind of, uh, they kind of like traditional Chinese medicine, you know. The, the, so there are there are little little issues here and there, but uh, but overall, this these are the kinds of sources that you want you want to look for. Great. We have a question here from Neil, uh, and he asks, uh, "What are your go-to methods for fact-checking claims that don't have any starting references?" Ooh, uh, I would love to have an example of that. That's that's interesting. I mean, there's always something. Uh, I mean, plausibility is a good place to start. 
uh, because, of course, these claims uh, don't exist in a vacuum. They exist within the laws of physics, within our knowledge of biology, of chemistry. Um, and so if there are no studies of this whatsoever, I mean, because there are a lot of gizmos online, uh, pseudoscientific gizmos uh, that don't have any kind of publications on them. So you kind of have to rely uh, on, on, on plausibility. Um, that's, that would be my first go-to. Like, does this make sense, uh, given what we know about biology, chemistry, and physics? Okay, uh, we have a question here from uh, Dave the Drummer. Uh, he asks, uh, no one seems to, to be prosecuting promoters of dangerous pseudoscience, like the Miracle Mineral Supplement Industrial Bleach That's guys. That's changing. That is changing. That is changing, absolutely. Uh, but why is it you think that we can't prosecute them for endangering public health? Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, about the, the, the MMS, um, on my podcast, A Body of Evidence, we just released a mini uh, interview uh, with a, uh, an autism activist mm. uh, who uh, revealed to us that actually the, the FDA uh, is cracking down on the Genesis 2 church. Uh, they've been the biggest promoter, uh, promoters of, of, of MMS. And when I asked her you know, how she felt about this, uh, because now apparently they're no longer authorized to sell this, uh, she said, well, I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, it's good because we've been fighting this fight for a long time. But on the other hand, you know, we've been fighting about this because it was used, it was being sold as an autism cure, among mm -hmm. other things. Uh, but the U.S. government didn't seem to care when it was autistic people. But now that they've jumped on the, on the COVID bandwagon saying, use MMS against COVID. Oh, now, now it's a danger. Now we need to do something about this. Uh, so, I mean, once in a while, you do get um, a little victory like this. But you're right, it is rare. It is all too rare. And the reason for that is, uh, I mean, I, I think it boils down to economics. It boils down to, it boils down to we don't really have the time. I mean, it's the same thing with uh, how come naturopaths uh, who are promoting all kinds of nonsense don't get uh, into trouble with a local physician's college, right? Because we have mm -hmm. orders of, of medical doctors that we have colleges. And what I'm told is that these colleges are already dealing with doctor, actual medical doctors who do terrible things. Um, and so they've got their hands full. Uh, there just aren't enough people. Uh, same thing with, you know, uh, the, the, there's kind of a, a running joke uh, that, you know, at Health Canada, for example, uh, the people who are in charge of the natural health products directorates, like three people in a basement somewhere. I don't know. There might be more of them. They might not be in a basement. But it's this idea that um, there just aren't enough people to do this correctly. And there are also some business incentives there that, you know, well, you know, what, is there really harm there? Uh, you know, customers, the consumer's choice, uh, all, all these kinds of arguments. Uh, so I think, I think that's why. I think it's very unfortunate, uh, but that's why. So I think we, we have to keep putting on pressure. We have mm. to keep publicizing the harm that is made from this. It's something that... Uh, I, luckily enough, whenever I do media interviews about pseudoscience, that's usually a question that comes out. It's like, well, what's the harm for this? And that's a great opportunity to communicate this to the journalists and to the public at large. So, Yeah, and that, that's definitely reflective of uh, the situation here in the UK, where you have a body like the uh, MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Authority. I think there's a regulatory devices authority or something like that in there. And they're the body who would be the ones to stop uh, homeopathy being uh, being sold without a license, as the vast majority of homeopathy in the UK is. It's sold without a license. It shouldn't be being sold in that way. But while they're the body who that who would be policing that, they're also the body who polices whether an aspirin has been tainted by some random chemical in its uh, production or, you know, genuine medicines that will genuinely harm you if you take them. And so 
inevitably they turn their attention to the most harmful stuff because that's where they they can see people being harmed by actually taking it and we end up uh batting our heads against a, a bit of a brick wall because the, they they don't see it being as much of a priority although in the age of the pandemic that seems to be changing at, uh, at times as people see a genuinely uh, harmful effect to even the most otherwise uh harmless looking pseudoscience it is uh and qu- quick parenthesis um some chiropractors in Canada actually published uh, a, an article denouncing other chiropractors who are saying that they can boost your immune system during COVID-19. So, you know, things are slowly changing here and there, but yeah, we're far from perfection. Okay, we have Dave from Coventry uh, who asks, uh, what is the most dangerous pseudoscience that you've encountered? <laughs> oh, uh, dangerous. It depends on how you define danger, I guess, uh, because it's, I mean, there's physical harm, there's financial harm, there's emotional harm. Um, I, I'm i not quite sure how to answer that question. I mean, I, I haven't, a lot of the stuff that I see is not something that is clearly uh, physically harmful on the spot, um, you know, but things like acupuncture, even with acupuncture, you know, there are cases of, of deflated lungs, uh, there are cases of, of needles uh, being contaminated and not having been sterilized. Uh, with chiropractic, of course, there's the, um, the issue of neck vein dissection. Uh, all of these things are relatively rare, but I, I think the, 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 the bigger danger overall is that people move away from medicine and they start to believe things that simply aren't true just because they feel good. Um, there was a study, small one, um, uh, seemingly showing that even when it comes to complementary medicine as opposed to alternative medicine, when people have cancer in this particular case and uh, they choose to undergo medical care, but also to take on you know herbs on the side or what have you, that these people do uh, more poorly and more of them die than people who don't do that. And the reason is that um, when it, when you say complementary, that's actually not quite true, uh, because what often happens is that these people will accept one medical treatment, but they will refuse another one. Mm. So if you're being told that you have to undergo surgery and chemo, these people might say yes to the surgery, but no to the chemotherapy. They'll take herbs instead, uh, and that is why they do more poorly. So all of these things are harmful in in, in the long run. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 not always physical. Uh, there's again, having bad ideas in your head makes you take bad decisions. Okay, we have uh, an anonymous question. Uh, fr- well, a question from someone. Have some anonymous. courage. Have some courage. Come on. <laughs> they may just not have signed up for uh, for, the, sure. for the system directly, uh, and they said there's been seven thousand papers published on the coronavirus, uh, more than a thousand in the past week alone. Half of them are preprints. Uh, is this explosion in the number of preprints a problem? Yes, it is. Oh God, it is. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, have, I'm writing articles for the, the McGill OSS where almost in every one of them I have to define what a preprint is uh, because I want to make sure people understand uh, that a preprint is a manuscript that has not been accepted by, a med- by a, an academic journal, that has not undergone formal peer review. It is essentially scientists writing a manuscript and then blogging it out uh, on their blogging platform. Um, that in and of itself is not necessarily problematic uh, because if you are in the midst of a pandemic and you have you have made some observations as a clinician, for example, if you're if you're a doctor, you're treating these patients, you're seeing something, you want to report back on this. Uh, having a preprint service is great because you can uh, you can circulate this information amongst your peers very quickly. 
It may not be accurate. It may be flawed. That's the thing. It hasn't undergone peer review, which itself is not a perfect process. But it's, it serves this purpose. The problem is that these preprint servers are publicly accessible. And so now you've got journalists who are going down there. You've got all kinds of uh, armchair epidemiologists who are looking at these preprints. And now they start tweeting about them. They start pu- push it, uh, you know, pushing them on Facebook. You get the LA Times you know, writing a story about how there's a, there's a big diff- a new strain of the virus and it's deadlier than the first one. And we then have to react to this. We're always uh, caught off guard and we have to sort of react to these things as science communicators, as scientists, as medical doctors. We all have to come in and say, no, actually, here's what's happening. You can't trust this. Here's why. And and that's, whoops, sorry, I just hit the microphone. And that is why uh, that's problematic. I'm all for preprint servers, uh, but I... I do have to wonder on the spot here if if there this should be you know if you would need to be part of a of a professional order to be able to access them to to that to that uh, in in that way uh, because right now journalists are going in there they're reporting on them and that can create a lot of confusion with the public. Mm-hmm. Um, you brought up the idea of plausibility as one of the tests that you can use, and we have an, a, a question from another anonymous viewer on that subject. They said, how can someone objectively determine what is plausible? Because many truths seemed implausible originally. So evolution, relativity, the fact that bacteria causes ulcers, these all seem implausible until they were proven to be true. So how do you determine objectively what is plausible? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, What I would say to that is that a lot of these examples that were brought up uh, are sort of these revolutionary ideas that, that will change a field, right? Uh, if we talk about, you know, uh, gravity, we talk about Einstein, we talk about uh, all of these, these major revolutions in science. But uh, we have to remember that most science does not work like that. Uh, these revolutions are very rare. Um, a lot of science is just building slowly up in incremental steps and moving ever closer to the truth. Um, so, uh, so we can't just say, you know, oh, well, what do we know about biology? Maybe this thing works. Who knows? Uh, no, there's, there's a very good foundation uh, already there. And it is true that maybe, maybe a central pillar of it will get, uh, will, will, you know, we'll find out that we were wrong about this and there's something else. But I would say that, you know, with, with reservation, you can still, uh, evaluate the plausibility of an intervention with what we currently know about biology, chemistry, and physics, uh, it's not perfect. And yeah, sure, there's a small chance that you might be wrong and that uh, you know, this thing will be proven to be true. I mean, that's why I, I suppose it is important to say, well, there's no good evidence behind this, as opposed to say, well, this is impossible. This could never work. Uh, you know, I try to avoid using that kind of language because it is true. There's always a small chance. It's a question of probability. I mean, what is the, the probability that this, this thing would actually work in the way that they say that it works, given what we know about science? And if the probability is very, very low, I am very comfortable saying, this is probably BS. Again, probably. Um, so that's how I deal with this. Sure. Um, we have a question from uh, another anonymous viewer, and they said, um, many of your criticisms, uh, I think it's about the papers fairly early on, you said many of the criticisms amount to ad hominem attacks, uh, the quality or the field of the PhDs, the acknowledgements that you don't like. They, they ask, doesn't this give skepticism a bad name? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's just about ad hominems. I mean, you, you do have to look at who the person is making the claim. I mean, it's not, it's not the full 
uh, you don't want to just base your 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 uh, your interpretation on that alone. You do have to look at the quality of the work. But I think as a quick heuristic, uh, it can be quite helpful to see where is the person coming from with this. Uh, you know, um, we're seeing this a lot, for example, with um, with armchair epidemiologists during COVID nineteen. There are people who do not have the background to be looking at charts and data and making, you know, pronostications of what's going to happen with this pandemic. Uh, there was a Medium post that was shared very widely that was made by a Silicon Valley computer dude uh, who just sat down and he had a model for the, for the pandemic. I don't think it's, a, it's, a, it's an ad hominem to point out the fact that he is not an epidemiologist. He's not a biostatistician. He's not a public health uh, official. He may not know what to do with his data. So I would question his, his interpretation of the data. Um, so no, it's, I, I don't see this as, a, as an ad hominem. I mean, it's part of, of your credibility, um, in science, having this credibility is important. If you don't have it, um, you know, you can, you can think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm going to be especially doubtful of this. Uh, that doesn't mean that you put the whole thing away, but, um, but it's, it goes into the, into the balance for me. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. And I think it's about kind of evaluating potential sources of bias. And it's not about throwing right. out someone's view entirely. But it's kind of like saying, if someone's telling you how wonderful a car is, um, and you find out that person is the manufacturer of that car or is trying to sell you that car, then you're going to think a little differently about how good that car actually is than if, you, if the person had absolutely no relationship to the car and just thought this is a really great car. You know, it's, it's that yeah. kind of thing. Is, it's one of the factors that you weigh in to how you assess the possibility of bias. You can't throw their opinion out for it, but it certainly has to factor in, especially if it, goes in the, if it flies in the face of what the, the consensus of, of people who are qualified in that field would actually say. Yeah, I agree. Um, we have a question here from Andrew who says uh, someone's judgment of the prior plausibility of an, inter of an intervention can be very personal. Um, how do we help people develop better instincts when they have these personal judgments of prior plausibility? Yeah, uh, I, I wish our scientific literacy was higher than it is. Um, often when scientific literacy is, is evaluated, by the way, it's, we're asking people very basic questions. Does the Earth revolve around the moon or the other way around and the sun and all, all that kind of stuff? Um, and, and that's not really what science is, right? It's not, it's not a collection of tidbits. It's, it's a method of thinking about the world. Um, and so I, I, I just, I, I wish that we, we educated people better in, in this respect because you need to understand these things in order to weigh in on, on the plausibility of an intervention. Like if somebody shows me this, you know, this chi disc, you know, that I showed earlier in my talk, um, thinking that this is plausible, that it might work. Well, yeah, there's, there's a lot of work that I need to do with this person to get them to realize that, oh yeah, that it's, it's probably BS because, you know, chi is based on this and there's no good evidence for that and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it is, I mean, what I would say is that some of these conversations, they're not just one-off conversations. Like if these, if these are people in your life, uh, you may need to talk to them for a while, uh, here and there, uh, and to, to, to continue this conversation and to, uh, to be, um, what, what's the expression to be the, um, the pebble in the shoe, uh, right. So you're, you're the person who's like making it harder for their beliefs uh, to uh, to to remain viable in their head. You, you keep tossing this little irritation there, this little thing that makes them think that makes them question. Um, yeah, it's, it's I mean, you can't just give somebody a whole science education overnight. Uh, you're going to have to you're going to need a number of conversations over over a long time to do that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so we have another question here from Dave in Coventry. Uh, he says, what pseudoscience, if it wasn't bollocks, would make you laugh the most? <laughs> 
I'm not sure I understand the question. Do you? I'm not sure I fully understand the question, to be honest, because uh, maybe it means it well, uh, maybe we can have uh, Dave uh, uh, explain that question a little further. Um, but but what pseudoscience, if it wasn't harmful, would make you laugh the most, do you think? Uh, I mean, I mean, you know, homeopathy is, is particularly laughable. Um, it's not it may not be directly harmful, but certainly there are indirect effects if you're not taking, you know, the, the, the right medicine, if you're not going to see a doctor and all, all that kind of stuff. But I, I mean, it is. It is particularly laughable in the sense that it just it just flies in the face of science. I mean, di- I'm sure everybody watching this are they're familiar with homeopathy, but like diluting something to make it stronger. Uh, I mean, all all that kind of stuff. All the experiments that were done trying to prove that like water had these this frequency that could be transferred uh, over the internet uh, to reconstitute it somewhere else. I mean, it's just it's it's pretty funny when you when you think about it. Uh, I, I once had a conversation with um, a cult who believed that they uh, had a, had this magical book, the information of which, which if you were to read it, seemed gibberish, was actually incredibly insightful, too, too insightful for our brains. And the only way that we could take in the amazing energies from this book is to write the book out by hand, to copy every single page of it. It's a really, really thick book. Because, in fact, the book was being beamed down to the person who wrote it, who was this octogenarian Turkish lady, from aliens via the Alpha Channel. And they said, what's remarkable about this book is this book is a living book. It's, it's imbued with Alpha energy. And it's a living book. And every single night, the aliens beam down a new copy of the book into the original copy of the book and change all of the words, change the order of the words, change everything. That's how remarkable this is. And I asked them, if that was true... You are spending a lot of time copying out the original book. Couldn't you compare the, your copy to the original copy? And they said, well, the aliens are really good. And they go and change all of the copies as well. And so they all match. <laughs> and that, that's the one for me that if it wasn't harming people because this was a cult that was getting people to make some pretty radical changes about their lives. Uh, that's the one that I think is the most ludicrous sort of that I've, uh, I've ever come across. Yeah. I thought I'd just drop, uh, <laughs> drop that one in there. Um, that's a good one. We have another anonymous uh, questioner. Uh, they asked, uh, how would you approach uh, conversations about a kind of sophisticated pseudoscience with, a, fam- with like, a family member with whom you can't get into this level of detail that you've been through tonight necessarily? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So, so I, I, I think um, I, w- I would borrow something from, um, there's, there's, a, there's a thing called motivational interview, um, and it's being tested here in Quebec for the vaccine hesitant, uh, because we don't have a lot of good, we don't have any good interventions to convince vaccine hesitant parents to vaccinate their kids. Uh, but there is this thing that seems quite promising. There's some good preliminary data on it. Uh, it seems to show that it may, it's making a difference. Uh, and it's, or instead, instead of bombarding the person with facts, uh, you you conduct a motivational interview, and you, you can look this up. Uh, and basically, what it means is that you are asking a lot of questions uh, very uh, nicely uh, without pushing back. Uh, you don't want to be aggressive. Uh, it's almost like therapy in a sense. And you want to know why this person feels the way they do about this thing, uh, in this case, vaccines. But you could also apply it, I suppose, to, uh, to belief in acupuncture or chiropractic or herbal medicine. Um, and you ask them why they think that it works. Um, uh, and you might, uh, they, they might talk about the studies that seem to show that it works. And then you can start to talk about the fact that there are some good studies and there are some bad studies. And like not all studies are created equal. And so which studies have you seen? Have you read the studies? How do you know they're good studies? Um, but it's also that a lot of them might say, well, I, it worked for me. 
because uh, that's the argument that I hear the most. People are not really convinced by scientific studies that much. I mean, there are some that, that are, but overall, it's a lot of personal experience. And to me, uh, this is like the alt-med equivalent of religious faith. Uh, this is the thing that the conversation always comes back down to. It's, but it worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that you can address without uh, much of a scientific ground, really, and without getting into, into the... the into into the bushes of of, of all this complex scientific stuff because you can talk about why personal experience is not that reliable you can talk about multiple treatments at the same time you can talk about regression to the mean Uh, you can talk about all the placebo stuff that mike hall has talked about a lot on skeptics with a k (laughs) for example um and all that kind of stuff uh, i think might speak even more to the average person than you know uh disassembling a systematic review or meta-analysis of a particular topic Great. And I think we'll ask one more uh, question here. Uh, I saw this one called uh, Cam Peter, who said uh, they can see that you've got Simon Singh and Ed Zardone's book, uh, Trick or Treatment, in your bookcase behind you, in your in your credibility bookcase. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's in their yeah. bookcase, too. Uh, are there any of the books that you recommend on related topics that would kind of help people uh, who are working through these kinds of uh, questions? Yeah. Uh, so Trick or Treatment, I put it there on purpose because it is the best damn book I've ever read about alternative medicine um, because it's not aggressive. Uh, it's not belittling. Uh, they literally just take you through. Here's everything that you need to know. We're going to go through the literature and then you don't even know from the start. Is it going to turn out to be true or not? Uh, it's very well written. It holds up uh, really, really well. So I, I recommend this. There's, of course, Carl Sagan's classic, uh, The Demon Haunted World. Uh, it's a little bit dated. It's, it's a lot of the paranormal and UFO type of stuff. Uh, but still, it's, it's, I think it's quite useful. Um, there's a very good book uh, that I've been recommending more and more these days uh, on uh, conspiracy theories uh, called, uh, what is it called? Escaping the Rabbit Hole uh, by Mick West. Uh, because he spent a lot of time arguing with conspiracists uh, online, and uh, he sort of gives his tips on how to have conversations with these kinds of people. Uh, I'm being asked this a lot because of the whole 5G, COVID-19, the cell towers on fire. Yes, we have seven of them in Quebec that are on fire. Um, so, like, what's that? how do you talk to, to these people? And so uh, it's a very good book about that particular topic. And again, his, his bottom line is you got to be nice. Uh, you got to be a nice person. Uh, you got to earn their trust. Um, you can't go in there like a bulldozer. Um, so those are pretty good books. What else? What else do I have there? <laughs> um, well, oh, I, I, sh- I should also recommend uh, Timothy Caulfield's books. Uh, Tim Caulfield is a Canadian uh, health policy expert at the University of Alberta. Uh, he has written two excellent books. Uh, well, he's written more than two books, but I, I have two of his books here. Uh, there's but, a but only two of them are excellent, is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. The rest are shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, so there's, there's a cure for everything, uh, which was his first book. And there's is Gwyneth, is Gwyneth Paltrow wrong about everything, uh, which is now being reprint, reprinted as the science of celebrity. Um, they're very good books because he does something that we need to do more of, uh, in our circles. It is he uses storytelling to bring the reader in. So he will go and like, he does, uh, I think he meets with one of Gwyneth's doctors in California. He does the whole skin treatment thing, and he reports back on this. And he kind of reads like a novel, like a first-person vlog type of thing. And so he goes through his this personal experience of of trying these things out. 
And then he looks at the body of evidence on this. What do the scientific studies say? And then he comes back to his story at the end. Uh, and I think that's a very useful framing device to bring people in because it's not as dry as just saying, let's studies. Uh, he brings you in with the story. Then he talks about the studies. And then he brings you back out again. Um, so those are some of my, some of my book recommendations. There are other uh, very good books out there. Uh, we had David Robert Grimes recently on the podcast, um, who many of you will be familiar with. Uh, he has a new book out, The Irrational Ape. I have not read it, uh, but I am told that it is a, it's a good primer on critical thinking and why we make all, mis- all these mistakes when we, when we think, you know, heuristics, cognitive devices, all that kind of stuff. So it's probably a very good book to read. Um, yeah, there you go. Fantastic. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for a brilliant talk and a, and a fantastic Q&A and for bearing with us while we uh, while we fought off some of those uh, technical gremlins early on. Uh, I'm sure the I can't see the comments right now, but I'm sure they're going wild with appreciation uh, for uh, for the fantastic uh, talk. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.